This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 9th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It's hard to find silver linings to a global pandemic, but it has helped achieve something valuable for parents who want to make meaningful choices for their own children's education. This year may well be the best year for the expansion of school choice ever. Jason Bedrick, director of policy at EdChoice and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, details what's happened so far. In 2018 and 2019 and 2020, we had sort of successive massive changes in sort of the structure, the potential structure of education and teacher unions in the United States of America. We had the decision at the U.S. Supreme Court that told public sector employees that they effectively could not be compelled to pay dues to uh, unions that they didn't want anything to do with. We had these uh, a bunch of pension fights in various states for uh, teachers, and we had the Red for Ed movement in some states that were uh, teacher strikes or uh, teacher sickouts or others. And then we had a global pandemic that effectively closed schools for a very long time. Now, here we are in 2021. What is the state of school choice at the various state levels now? I mean, the state of school choice has never been better in, in some sense. Um, and I think that uh, the pandemic has obviously a lot to do with it uh, in a few different ways. First, uh, the pandemic uh, opened a lot of people's eyes to the necessity to have multiple options, right? So at the at the beginning of the pandemic, you got a lot of schools that closed down uh, and parents, uh, you know, were sort of left in a lurch trying to figure out how they could go to work and at the same time, uh, you know, take care of their kids uh, or they were home with their kids trying to figure out how to work from home while their kids are also working from home. Uh, there was a lot of dissatisfaction uh, among parents with the uh, distance learning uh, that was not nearly uh, as high quality as the in-person learning. Uh, and then you also had some families that just said, well, look, you know, I, I would, I'm fine with, uh, with distance learning, but that's actually not an option where I live. Right. So it worked, you know, both ways. Um, and in each community, no matter what they decided to do, remain open, close, go to some sort of hybrid option. Uh, there was certainly a number of parents that were very happy with that option, or at least set relatively satisfied with that option. But there were a lot of families that, that wasn't working for them. They were very dissatisfied. And especially for those whose schools were closed, when parents see that there are, are local private schools that were able to open safely and effectively and provide an education for their children, uh, and they were wondering, well, why can't our local public schools do the same thing? And so uh, parents have been just looking for different options. Let's save the best for last here, but uh, let's talk about what some states have done this year uh, relating to school choice. And uh, if you want to get into the politics of it, that's fine, but uh, feel free to to stick strictly to what's changed. I think what's changed is that uh, because parents are looking for different options, and again, both because of the, the pandemic, but also because uh, they're seeing what's going on in the classroom uh, with distance learning, and they're, in many cases, they're, they're not happy. Uh, so, and sometimes they're not happy because uh, they don't like the quality, uh, and sometimes they don't, they're not happy because they don't like the politicization of the classroom. They don't like what's uh, actually being taught uh, in their child's classroom, and so they're looking for other options. 
Uh, and they're going to their state legislators and saying, uh, you know, we want you to provide us with uh, if, you, if the schools are going to be closed, uh, then we should take the funds and, and go spend it at a private school or some other place that that's that's open. And what we're seeing is just a massive wave of uh, school choice legislation uh, all across the country. So more than 30 states right now have some form of private school choice legislation. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, the traditional school voucher, uh, tax credit, scholarship programs, and also education savings accounts, which are, are sort of um, school vouchers 2.0. Uh, uh, the ESAs, uh, not to be confused with education savings accounts like Coverdell or 529 college saving plans, these are K-12 ESAs where a portion of the state spending per pupil follows your child into a restricted use bank account that you can use for a wide variety of things. You can use it for private school tuition, but also things like tutoring, textbook, homeschool curricula, online learning, uh, educational therapy, and unused funds can be saved and rolled over from year to year for future expenses. Uh, we've had more than a dozen states uh, pass uh, one of these bills through a state uh, through a state legislative chamber. Uh, and two states have already uh, enacted new uh, education savings accounts policies. Uh, recently, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice signed uh, what is going to be the most expansive ESA law in the country that allows every single child that is either switching out of a public school or entering first grade to have access to an ESA. Uh, and also, uh, the Kentucky legislature passed uh, an ESA law. It was gov it was vetoed by Governor Bashir, but the legislature then overrode the veto, and that was recently signed into law by uh, your friend Caleb, the Secretary of State. That's right. So this promises. I asked you a while ago because I, I follow you on social media, and I asked you a while ago, as it seemed like every day you were saying one chamber in some state has passed this thing, uh, another chamber, and now they've just signed this into law. Is 2021 shaping up to be the best year ever for school choice in America? I think it's very possible. Um, you know, I think the the high watermark was uh, 2011, the Wall Street Journal called 2011, the year of school choice. There was just over a dozen bills that were enacted that year, uh, new or expanded educational choice programs. Uh, I think that uh, we are on track to beat that this year. Uh, I think right now there are five states that have ESA policies. Uh, that would be Arizona, Florida, uh, Mississippi, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Uh, we've already added two this year. I think there's a good chance we'll have five or more, which means that we'll uh, you know at least double the number of states that have an ESA. Uh, and I think it's possible that we could even get uh, 15 or more states that enact a, a new or expanded program. Living in Kentucky, I have seen in this go-round of fights over school choice, I've seen it a lot more closely than uh, I have in previous years. And my hat's off to everyone who works on school choice issues because I did not really understand the degree to which uh, local media uh, and statewide media would fundamentally, repeatedly, and it's hard to argue that they're not doing this on purpose, misrepresent fundamentally what a lot of these uh, school choice programs would do. Uh, having been uh, 
you know, fighting this fight for so long. Uh, how do you evaluate that? I mean, it, it's it's very it's it's disconcerting. It's a little disappointing, I guess, because I was a reporter for so long uh, to to see this uh, the way it's rolled out. But but how do you evaluate that? Yeah, look, I mean, there there are a number of uh, really great journalists out there who take their job seriously, who uh, uh, do their best to be objective. I think no human being can be truly objective, but they they really do try. Uh, and they give, you know, both sides a fair hearing. Uh, unfortunately, it's also the case that there are a lot of activists that are disguising themselves as journalists. And uh, on this issue, I mean, it, it's gotten worse, I think, in recent years. Uh, there are simply, there are facts out there that are, <laughs> that are just indisputable that we keep hearing the other side uh, or reporters report um, the opposite. Uh, so for example, uh, you keep hearing things like, oh, there have been these massive cuts to public education. Well, actually, no, no, there haven't, right? We, we can show you the data going back decades, right? The, the every state department of education tracks this, the feds track it. Uh, so they keep talking about these massive cuts in education and sometimes they'll run retractions, but sometimes they won't. I mean, the Philly Inquirer just the other day was talking again about these massive cuts that simply didn't exist. They had already run a retraction on it. They're, they don't seem like they're willing to run a retraction this time. Uh, constantly calling programs, voucher programs, even when it's a tax credit scholarship or it's an ESA, which are uh, similar, but uh, very different in key respects. For example, in Kentucky, a voucher program would be unconstitutional, but a tax credit, a tax credit funded program uh, should pass constitutional muster. What they did pass is tax credit funded, but they, they say it's diverting uh, public funds. That's not the case. It doesn't use public funds at all. Uh, so we do see these sorts of things pop up over and over and over. If you were to characterize what's what's the most important metric here for uh, for parents and fans of school choice to understand, is it the number of students in America who are eligible for some sort of choice program? Is it the relative robustness of programs in individual states? What metric do you follow? That's a great question. And uh, there's no one metric that we look at. Obviously, when, when we're looking at a particular state, right? Um, we want it to be as close to universal as possible. You want as many children as possible to have access to the widest uh, number of options available. Uh, we think that is um, A, what's most fair, but also what's most likely to uh, produce the greatest quality for the most children, right? But you could have a program that everybody has access to but uh, is very poorly designed uh, that that may, you know, you know, if, if a program was only, let's say, providing $50 per kid, well, that's not really going to make a difference. Or if they they said, you know, OK, you can you can go to any type of school that you want, but it has to be a school that um, uh, teaches this particular curriculum, uh, you know, that's also not providing you um, with a, a variety of options. Uh, so that's going to work for some kids, but it's not going to work for all kids. Uh, so what we want is a, a relatively free market approach. Uh, we think the money should follow the child, uh, but that the parents are the ones that are in the best position to decide uh, what learning environment is the right fit for that child. 
Jason Bedrick is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and director of policy at EdChoice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>